last year was kind of your biggest opportunity to get into any space for anything reasonable, because at this point, spaces are full and rents are out of control. Coffee is all about convenience. Yes, do people like to hang out in cafes and meet their friends or have a business meeting? 100%. So that's still a function here, for sure. But what's more important than that is to be convenient. It couldn't have been worse for the West End. Everything shut down. It was pretty brutal, if I'm honest. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Young editor-in-chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. On today's podcast, we'll be discussing the impact that COVID has had on the real estate property market for coffee and hospitality businesses, and how finding the right site could make or break any new cafe opening. We'll explore the success factors that make for a great coffee shop location and find out what's happening to rents and site availability across London, New York, and Los Angeles. We'll be speaking with Julia Wilkinson, restaurant director at Shaftesbury, a landlord and property developer based in London's West End, Heather Perry, vice president of Clatch Coffee in Greater Los Angeles, California. But first, let's kick things off with Russell Helbling, managing director of Cats & Associates, to discuss retail location strategy. Russell is a seasoned real estate broker based in New York, having exclusively represented Starbucks Coffee Company for the past 16 years. Welcome, Russell. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. To start off, could you give us an overview of the landscape for property in New York post-COVID? Has New York's property market recovered? I wouldn't say that it's it's not fully recovered, no. I would say that it's recovering, and at least, you know, tangentially, I'm seeing a lot of uh, deals happening and markets continuing to strengthen again. Uh, You know, during the 24 months, let's call it, of the heat of the pandemic, New York City was weird. Uh, there's no other way to describe it. You know, at least even early on, you'd, you know, I'd go to the city to get something and it was a ghost town. It was very, very eerie and very, very strange. But I'd say it is recovering and there are deals happening. And I know some tenants that were very much, you know, I'm not opening any more stores in New York City, uh, call it, you know, even say, as far as, you know, six months ago, are starting to look again and look to the markets and start to do deals again, which I think is great. Uh, you know, New York City is a resurgent city and, and a resilient city. And I know we're going to turn it around, but we're still, we're not, we're not pre-pandemic levels yet. No way. It's going to take time. So what's happened to rents in New York during this period? Have rents gone down or are landlords opting to keep properties empty? So the first couple of months of this weird time in our lives, nothing was happening, right? And then as some, you know, tenants started to, you know, poke their heads out and say, okay, I, I see opportunity now. And there, there's got to be some vacancies that maybe uh, spaces we couldn't afford in the past and deals we couldn't do in the past, uh, whether it was economics or competition for space. Um, let's get out there and try to do deals. And, and, you know, during that, call it six to 10 month window, mid 2021, I think there was a lot of deals to be made. And when I say deals, I mean actual deals where landlords were being very aggressive um, and and lenient and wanting to cut deals with with tenants, especially good tenants, uh, especially national tenants or brands with multiple locations in the the geography. We were seeing deals being done at, call it, 50% of the asking rent 
and we were doing step ups in the rent. So let's say a landlord, I'm just using round numbers, was asking $10,000 a month uh, for their space. They would maybe say, you know what, give me $5,000 a month for the first year, and then let's go up to $8,000 a month for the second year. And by the third year, they'd get to the rent that they wanted to be and where they had underwritten their properties. So they were being a lot more flexible. And that was, I think, the only way deals were getting done because landlords saw the writing on the wall, realized what they needed to do in order to transact. And they were, you know, and deals were happening. When that started happening, though, and, and we other tenants saw landlords getting much more aggressive, more tenants came out of the woodwork, and now there became more competition on the spaces. Once more competition happens, it's like anything else, supply and demand, right? Once there's more tenants looking at the spaces, landlords started to get smart, and those really aggressive, really attractive deals started to trickle away. I'd say now we're back at a point where competition is strong on spaces. Landlords are maybe a little bit more flexible than they were pre-pandemic. I think that's going to be the way of the world going forward for a while um, as we kind of reset where rents were. I think that rents, not only in New York City, but everything surrounding it, were extremely inflated based on the strength of the market, the strength of the economy, and again, supply and demand. Uh, you know, Landlords could ask anything they want if they had tenants clamoring for their spaces. I- I'd say that a little bit of that clamoring is over, but again, landlords have smartened up from, you know, again, eight months ago. And they're like, well, I have people wanting my spaces. The rents are, maybe they're not 10,000 a month or 9,000 a month, right? So they're being a little flexible, but they're still standing kind of firm on what they want to get the deals done. So it, it's definitely tightened up for sure. And, and that's just New York City, right? The suburbs was a whole different animal during the pandemic. The suburbs, I think a lot of people saw I know a lot of tenants that I work with that were in the city or, you know, surrounding, you know, they were like, oh, there's going to be all this opportunity. We're going to see all these second generation spaces coming available. We're going to see all these people going out of business. We didn't see that. We didn't see it at all. Actually, I saw the market tighten up. I saw rents kind of increase. And I saw that we were fighting for deals, trying to get them done and, and having to pay more rent than maybe we ever did in the past to get deals done because the spigot in the city was turned off. So I think a really good example of that would be Starbucks Coffee Company, who I've represented for the last 16 years of my life. I have done over 125 stores with them over that that time frame. And I represent them exclusively in Long Island, which is a major suburb of New York City. And during this time, this last 24 months, they had committed that they didn't want to do anything in the city because they didn't know what was going to happen in the city. Uh, same thing with the, the boroughs, you know, the, the, the outer boroughs of New York City, you know, Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens, Staten Island. Same kind of messaging, right? Where they would still do deals in those markets, but we were looking for drive-throughs. Why? Because drive-throughs showed themselves during the pandemic as being invaluable to convenience-based tenants. So, when that was all happening, it was a confluence of many, many factors. One, they had store count, right? They needed to open stores, right? They told Wall Street they were going to open a certain number of stores. They had sales weeks they needed to capture, uh, again, based on investors and, and the stock market and everything that goes, with, goes along with it being a public company. And I think, and this is just me, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves, when they saw that they weren't really going to be growing in the urban markets as much as they typically had, they had to shift that, that focus somewhere else. And that focus really got shifted into the suburbs, which was, was a benefit for me. And, and 
I had the busiest two years of my life with them as a client. We did more deals than we've ever done in that period of time. We paid more rents. We were very aggressive. And quite frankly, the, the real reasoning is that we saw the success of drive throughs You know, a lot of the stores that didn't have drive throughs weren't open during COVID. And we were still functioning through our drive through window and, and doing the sales and, and being, you know, making money at the end of the day, because that's their goal, right, is to be a profitable company. So they really leaned into that. And I've seen that not only with Starbucks, but I've seen it with many, many tenants, whether it's fast food guys, they started going crazy in the suburbs, uh, being very aggressive, attacking sites, paying bigger rents that they've ever paid before, dropping clauses in their deals that they typically wouldn't drop just to get the deals open because they saw the strength of the market, the strength of the drive-through and the strength of the suburbs. And that was bolstered by the, the mass exodus of people out of New York City over the last two years where people are either, you know, move, moving to other parts of the country. But, you know, if I just look at my, you know, my circle of friends and colleagues, most people that were living in the city who were, I'm never leaving the city people, at some point during this thing, were like, you know what? I want to move to the suburbs. You know, living in the city isn't great right now. And many people did it. And that just increased the population. It brought more strong customers, people with real income, people that appreciated better quality food and beverage. And they were moving out, not, not only to Long Island, Westchester, Connecticut, northern New Jersey, et cetera. You know, all of those, the donut or, you know, the New York City is the hole in the donut, right? And everything outside that donut. You know, people were moving there because they want a better quality of life. They have kids. They want a backyard. They want a driveway and a garage and all these things that you don't get by living in the city. And that, again, just more people, disposable income, spending money on, you know, discretionary items like coffee, like dining out. And I think that, you know, that kind of raised all ships and everybody started to do really, really well in sales, uh, at least in the suburbs. So have the suburbs now, have they kept it up over that, that period? I mean, obviously they had this moment when New York City was closed down effectively and everyone's moving out. Have the numbers stayed buoyant? And, and is this going to be a permanent shift? At least now it seems that way. I haven't seen a fall off in rents. I haven't seen a fall off in competition for space. It's still, you know, ferocious competition for good corners, uh, for good spaces. At least in the short term, I don't see rents coming down. I don't. Again, it goes back to what I said earlier, supply and demand. If you were asking, again, making up numbers, $200,000 a year for a space, and you've got eight people vying for that space, and now one guy offers 200, the next guy offers 210, the next guy offers 215, and it keeps going and going, that hasn't stopped. And the, the price of the, of the properties continues to go up where, you know, now those A plus corners that were typically, again, making up numbers, $250,000 a year to rent are now $300,000 a year to rent because everyone wants it. So the landlords could ask what they want and they're getting it. And as long as the tenants keep paying it, they're going to keep asking it. I think it will right size itself at some point. That's this, you know, markets are cyclical and that's how this works. But at least for right now, it's no time in the near future Will it come down? I just don't see it. Now, what is the key? What are the absolute 101s of getting a site right, picking that location? What are operators looking for? I think that's a great question. So when we talk about coffee, coffee is all about convenience. Yes, do people like to hang out in cafes and meet their friends or have a business meeting? 100%. 
Howard Schultz always said we were creating the third place, right? You've got home, you've got work, and then he wanted to be your third place. So that's still a function here for sure. But what's more important than that is to be convenient. And how do we deliver convenient spaces? Well, first and foremost, we're always looking to be, we want to target AM traffic. So morning traffic, because typically people want to get their coffee in the morning on their way to work. And for us, at least, again, now talking uh, suburbs in New York City, it's what side of the road do you want to be on where it's a traffic pattern to go to Manhattan? Now, again, all of this is kind of wonky with are people going to work and not, you know, but I think it's just tried and true. And as things continue to normalize, it's going to stay tried and true. But what you want to be is you want to be on the morning drive, on the morning commute for people that are going towards work and going to the city. And every suburb is going to have whether it's the north side, the south side, the west side of the road is different based on where you are, right? But you're looking to capture that traffic pattern. And it's the same thing with then being convenient to a train station. You know, people take public transportation into the city. Again, weird time right now, but it's going to come back. So you want, you want to target locations that are going to service those morning drivers. And that doesn't mean that people don't come in the afternoon, but the bulk of their business, any coffee operator is going to be call it between 6 a.m. and 11 a.m. in the morning. That's when people are coming to get their coffee at a, at a coffee store. So first things first, capture a.m. traffic. Second thing is visibility. You gotta, people need to see you. So we want to make sure that we're on that a.m. side and that people know you're there. Because once they know you're there, we're training the customers, right? The customer pattern will be learned. So even if they don't know you're there at first, once they come once, they know where they are, and then their morning habits will change so that they're able to come in and get their coffee on their way to work, the most convenient way to go to work. So that's obviously important. The next thing in this location, location, location is accessibility. So again, now, now we're on the right side of the road. People see us. Can they get there, right? How easy is it to get there? Is it at a traffic signal, right? How are the curb cuts? Are there ne- enough of them? Is there a stop sign? Is traffic going to be slowed, et cetera? And the next thing that's very important is parking accessibility, right? It's typically a very quick transaction. And that's why most of these better coffee operators are using apps and mobile order paying and you know ordering in advance because it's about churning people in and out because they want to get their coffee and go. The next thing to overlay, which I think a lot of coffee operators are looking at, you know, Starbucks has been doing it for a long time and they've gotten really good at it, is the drive-through component. Cool cafe where people come to hang. But as things have shifted and we've realized that Coffee is convenience, coffee in the morning. People want to be in and out and get on their way. Drive-throughs make that possible. And a drive-through adds so much convenience for the customer that it's definitely the future, I think, of what every coffee operator is going to do. And whether it's again Starbucks or a guy out of the city like Gregory's Coffee or Dutch Bros that's making a big push drive-throughs across the country, whether it's micro drive-throughs, Duncan leaning in much more to drive-throughs. Everyone is leaning into drive-thrus and I think that COVID just accelerated that need when people couldn't come into the store, but it's a sound business model because it's the ultimate convenience. You don't have to get out of your car. It could be rain, sun, snow, doesn't matter. You can have your kids in the car on the way to soccer practice. You want to get your coffee. It's easy. You pull up, you order, and you're on your way. And I think that drive-thrus are the most important thing to coffee convenience going forward, especially in the suburbs. Wow. 
incredible. We're even seeing drive through becoming a major trend here in the UK too. And what about the size of location? You talked about the convenience, but there is this angle of meeting up with friends and hanging out a little bit, maybe diminishing a bit. So are you expecting coffee shops to diminish in size over time where it becomes much more transactional? So no, I'm actually seeing the opposite. I'm seeing stores get bigger and why, right? I think that's, that's the why is that what's important here. So you had your sales without a drive-through. You have your engine in the store, right? That's what we call it. The engine where you're making the coffee. It's a certain size, right? And it was able to accommodate the line to get the throughput in through the store to get the transaction and move it on, right? As you then overlay the drive-through capacity on that, that's going to, you would imagine, increase your sales, increase the amount of people coming to the store. So you need more space to be able to craft the drinks and make the drinks and brew the coffee and also still service people inside, et cetera. So I think that in order to accommodate the increased volume of cars and volume of customer, you have to go a little bigger in the stores to accommodate more space to make the coffee, make the drinks, make the food, whatever you're making. And I'm seeing it across the board, not just coffee. People who were smaller are going bigger. And the other caveat to that, the other factor that's driving larger sizes, in my opinion, is the Uber Eats, the DoorDash, the you know all these brands that you can call and order a cup of coffee at Starbucks and they'll come deliver it. But now you've got people that aren't coming to your store that are ordering it. You've got a third party coming to pick it up. They need a place to go and they need a place to store it while you're waiting for it to be picked up and then taken out the door. That whole business is a business within a business where you need room to accommodate it. Wow. Obviously, you work with a very, very big brand. What about the smaller players? Is there going to be opportunities for smaller specialty coffee operators in, in this marketplace as things get so much more competitive and race for the best sites? You know, what, what's the opportunity for smaller operators? I think that Starbucks is like the, it was like the gateway to better quality coffee. Everyone knows Starbucks. Everyone drinks Starbucks. Doesn't matter what market you're in from a lower demographic, middle of the road to high end. Starbucks has become that. That was the gateway. And that opened people's eyes to better brands, better quality coffee, and then really becoming passionate about coffee. And it's given the opportunity for the smaller, more independent brands to continue to grow because the population as a whole has become more educated on what makes a good cup of coffee and what they like. And I love when I stumble upon a guy that's small, that's roasting his own coffee, that's a real, you know, tactician of coffee. And you go in and you start talking about it and, and BSing about coffee. And you realize that they have a real passion for the, for the product. And you know, you're getting a good cup of coffee. And, and to me, that, that's exciting. And that's great. And I think that there's, that's the opportunity for other, you know, smaller third wave brands to continue to grow. And do landlords want these smaller brands? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends. You know, every landlord has different, different desires. But I've seen the landlord at this point is also educated about coffee and understands the strength of having a coffee operator, whether even if they're local, but if their product's good, about what kind of traffic that operator is going to drive through their building or their shopping center or, or you know, their office or whatever it is, they see the value there. A lot of landlords see the coffee operator as an amenity to the building. So I feel that landlords are smartened up and understand that brands like that bring a real amenity. And it doesn't have to be Starbucks. It could be a great third weight operator that has a very comfortable design and look and feel that's really pr producing amazing product. And 
if they produce amazing product in a nice setting, customers are going to come. And then the more customers that come, then you can lease the space next door, then lease the space next door. Then you can have lease your retail space, you lease your residential space. It all kind of plays off of providing amenities to what's around you. So yes, I think landlords are going to continue to accept coffee. Well, that's a great way to end it. Thanks, Russell, for joining us here on Fifth Wave. Absolutely. My pleasure. Had a great time doing it. I found it fascinating to hear how buoyant the real estate market is for coffee shops in the neighborhoods surrounding New York City, with some locations even performing better than pre-COVID. Russell gave us a powerful list of the key factors to consider when selecting the perfect coffee shop location. Convenience, especially for the morning trade, visibility, accessibility, and increasingly, drive through Let's head across to the west coast of America to catch up with Heather Perry, Vice President at Clatch Coffee, a family-run chain of cafes and a roastery in California. We spoke to Heather last year in episode 18 on the role of food in coffee shops, which you can head back and listen to if you missed it. Heather is a two-time U.S. barista champion and has a deep understanding of the U.S. coffee shop market. Let's hear from Heather on how the coffee shop real estate landscape is performing in L.A. compared to New York. Welcome, Heather. Delighted to have you here on Fifth Wave again. Thank you so much. Today's topic is location, 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 and the importance of finding the right site. But let's take a step back first for a moment and talk about the impact of COVID. What are things like over there in LA right now? So we are definitely one of the last ones to lift all of the COVID restrictions. And at this point, everything is lifted. But even so, in the last year, as much as we've had COVID restrictions, people have been wearing masks and we've had some other requirements. We've definitely seen people starting to come out more and more. What is the damage to the industry in terms of COVID? Have we seen a lot of closures of coffee shops in sort of California or in the greater Los Angeles area? No, COVID is one of those interesting things where I really think restaurants are different than coffee shops in this case in particular. Very different. Quick service is very different than restaurants in my mind when we're talking about the impact of COVID for a few reasons. One, I think it's hard, even for myself, it's hard to justify a $125 takeout meal. So if I was going to go and have a nice meal at a restaurant, that might be what I expect my husband and I to pay. I'm much less likely to get that same meal to go because part of that dining experience really is the experience as well, right? The servers and Great. the conversation, how they're how they're treating your meal, having it fresh, the look of it, all of those things go hand in hand. Coffee is very different in the sense that one, it's a much smaller item. Um, and two, people are used to getting it to go. So even if you would normally love to go to a coffee shop and have something and dine in for there, you're also very used to drinking coffee on the go. So coffee shops, I I think if you were a good, if you ran a smart business, you could survive COVID and potentially come out of it even stronger. What's interesting for us looking at our business model, and this is not to discredit anybody's struggles during COVID or or to discount them or anything like that. I know it was really hard for a lot of places and we really struggled as well in, in certain times. But some of the things that we really did was we looked at our business and said, how do we be as efficient as possible? How do we look at our costs? How do we look at our wastes? How do we really manage all of these things really carefully? And so we looked at every aspect of our business with a really fine tooth comb and we managed to survive COVID. And we learned a lot that we apply today from a business sense and from taking some of those cost controls that we learned um, from looking at how we manage our payroll. 
So it, it didn't have to be a damning thing for a business. I think a lot of the impact that COVID had on your business was potentially where you were. For instance, if you were in a downtown area where all the businesses were closed, I, I think it was obviously a much different conversation. Most of our stores are in suburbia. So for us, people would come, even if it was there, if that was only their 10 minutes of the day out of the house, even in, the, even in peak COVID. So I think there were still ways to manage it. And, and that's how we have come out of it and survived COVID. What has been the impact of that on rents and on availability of sites for coffee shops in the Los Angeles area? So what's interesting is you would think that there would be a plethora of spaces available, and that is not the case at all. I think last year you hit the peak of availability. Um, When COVID started in, what was it, March of 2020, I think those first couple months and that summer going into that fall are where you saw the biggest impact on businesses. And so talking last year, January through March, you saw who survived and who didn't. And so last year was your biggest opportunity to get into any space for anything reasonable because at this point, spaces are full and rents are out of control. <laughs> rents out of control. Yeah. I mean, everything from commercial buildings, we're, we're trying to buy a new commercial building for our roastery. Huge dollars right now and very little availability. It's funny enough, a little bit like the housing market, to be totally honest. I don't know how the housing market is around the rest of the world. In the States, it's really high. And in California in particular, the housing market has increased in Southern California 70% in the last year, and the rates are ridiculous. That's a, quite a surprising finding that rents are high and there's very little available for coffee shops. I'd like to now turn to the kind of concept of what makes a great site for a coffee shop? How do you select a great site? And what's the process you go through to make sure you, you identify the right site? That's such a tough one. And we're exploring a bunch right now. And I think there's a few big questions around that. And it definitely depends on the business, obviously, and what the business model is. We were talking about rents being really high right now. And a big part of what people are doing in Southern California is you have chains getting bigger. All of the chains, ground leases are becoming a much bigger part of the market here in Southern California. And that makes it very difficult for the smaller guy to get any kind of competitive site, if you will, what you would deem a good site. And a lot of landlords want brand recognition in their place as well. So they want something that they know is going to be there long term. So if you're a newer player to the area, it can also be a little bit tricky. One of the things that I think was really interesting during COVID, and this is an interesting way to look at it, but we were able to be so efficient because everything was takeout. When you do dine in, even for somebody like a coffee shop, we have to have extra people on the floor to manage the floor, to keep it clean to create your interactions with customers are longer. But it's interesting because now that you're coming out of COVID, I have to to incur those additional labor costs. I think one of the things that we learned in having different models for ourselves is we can make a lot of different business models successful. But for us at Clatch, it's having a plethora of them that I think has really allowed us to come out of COVID doing well. Having a drive-through, having ones that have large patios, having ones that have small footprints and are mostly to go. Having that kind of diversity in our cafe model, I think, allowed us to capture so many different markets and come out of it. Right now, our stores that have the largest footprint and the largest patio space are the ones that are thriving right now because people want to get out. They want to gather. They want to meet with friends. Um, And our drive throughs is still doing well. And I think drive throughs will probably in Southern California always do well. 
But I think for us, when I'm looking at what is a new space, I really look at what community are we serving and what do they need? Does the community in this area need a large, do they have other places where they're going? Do they need a really good gathering spot? Do they need just a spot to grab good coffee really quick? So that's what we look at is really what's around that area and what does that community need? What could we do to serve that community? And does that space make sense for it? Great. Thanks, Heather, for joining us here today on Fifth Wave. You're very welcome. Thank you. I was staggered by the increase in the cost of rents in LA, almost as though COVID never happened. Heather's best advice for selecting the ultimate coffee shop location is to figure out what the community wants and to pick the retail solution for that purpose. Let's head over to London now and speak with Julia Wilkinson, restaurant director at Shaftesbury, a property company listed on the London Stock Exchange. Shaftesbury invests exclusively in the creative areas of London's West End, operating 600 freehold properties focusing on shops, restaurants, cafes, and bars. Welcome, Julia. Thank you for inviting me. What do you think the keys are to a great location for a hospitality venue? So I think a diverse customer base is is really important. I mean, talking about the the West End, which is obviously our exclusive focus, if you look at our customer base, you know, you might initially think, well, Carnaby and, and, and Chinatown, they're very much tourist destinations. And obviously that is incredibly important. But actually the West End has a huge working population. And, you know, historically they've been here five days a week. We are seeing quite a rapid return to the office at the moment. But equally, you know, the West End has a, a strong residential population. It also has a lot of students. Plus, you know, you've got the day visitors, whether it's people coming to shop, people coming for the entertainment district. Now, you mentioned that the workplace uh, is coming back. What does that look like compared to March 2020 when everything just ground to a halt? I mean, it couldn't have been worse for the West End. Everything shut down. It was pretty brutal, if I'm honest. But actually, what we're seeing now, the restrictions are lifted and, and say, office workers are coming back and tourists are being coming, coming back. You know, the West End is really coming to life. And we did see this last year when the first wave of restrictions were lifted. Actually, the West End bounced back really quickly. And I think the sort of unique experience that you do get in central London was the reason why it rebounded so quickly and why, you know, despite the huge setback of Omicron at Christmas time, we knew that come the new year when restrictions were lifted again, you'd see the same bounce back. And actually, I think we're going to see the recovery picking up even more quickly. Great. And what does that mean for occupancy rates and and rents? You know, are rents back to the levels pre-COVID or has there been an impact on rents? In terms of our portfolio, we did a huge amount to support our operators during those periods when they weren't able to trade. We made the decision early on to contact all our operators directly. We didn't hide behind managing agents. We, I was literally on the phone for for the you know most of the, the first sort of three to four months, speaking directly to all our individual occupiers. And most of them are independents. They're founder-led businesses. They were seeking reassurance that that we were there to help them, and and we did. And financially we gave a huge amount of support we're in good shape coming out of this we do have some vacancy but it's certainly not been as widespread as you might have predicted is there there any any data you can share on you know is it just to get some numbers behind that I think hospitality, and I can only really speak for hospitality rents Mm -hmm. I think they probably reduced by maybe sort of 10% something like that 
that's increasing now. We're, we're gaining ground on that. In terms of vacancy rates, we're currently at just under 3% across the whole portfolio. So I think that gives an indication of, wow. of demand for the West End. I mean, obviously, it was higher than that a year ago. But interestingly, we were still doing lettings during lockdown and less in, in sort of retail and our offices where leases are shorter. But I think the difference with hospitality is that hospitality operators tend to take a much longer term view. You're you know, typically signing a lease for 10 or 15 years. So agreeing a lease in sort of you know, late 2021, early 2020, there were some opportunities there to, to you know, agree some good deals at slightly lower rents in the knowledge that you know, you're securing an opportunity for the next 15 years. So I think that speaks volumes really for, for the industry. So it sounds like there's a, a bit of a bounce and there must be, you know, some quite strong demand now for hospitality spaces in the West End. Yes. And we are seeing that interest come from sort of different areas than we were previously. I mean, obviously, a lot of the, the branded operators aren't in the market. They've either vanished entirely or they've downsized enormously during the pandemic. So that in itself has created some fantastic opportunities for new operators, new blood to come through. I'm definitely seeing interest coming through from operators who, you know, have basically used the lockdown to, you know, to get creative and have a think about new ideas to come up with new concepts. Am I right to say that there's potentially less, well, there's a sort of a falling away of the tired old brands to, we're going to see a lot more vibrant young independent businesses? Absolutely. And a really nice example of that, which I've been directly involved in, is Charlotte Street in Fitzrovia. So that, I mean, it is a very historic, very beautiful dining destination. But over the years, it became a little bit of a victim of its own success. And the branded operators moved in to, to Charlotte Street. So three years ago, perhaps two and a half years ago, you'd have found a Oaxaca, a Coat, a Zizi, a Pizza Express, they've all gone. So some of those brands are no more, some of them you know, are, are, are much reduced and, and those were sites that they pulled out of. So that's created four opportunities in one of the you know, loveliest streets in the West End. And all of those sites have been relet to independent founder-led businesses. We were involved in one, the Oaxaca site. We've let to a fantastic operator called Carousel, which is a, a fantastic, exciting hybrid operator that work with a rotation of chefs and have a development kitchen, a wine bar, super creative, owned by two brothers who have operated in a, a pop-up site for, for many years. You know, on the back of the pandemic, and this opportunity came up for them in, in Charlotte Street, which would never have been available for them before. It was also partially fitted, so that saved on some of their fit-out costs. So with that wiping of the slate, Fitzrovia is now gaining back its reputation for being you know, a real foodie destination, a chef-led restaurant destination, which, which is the real silver lining, actually. And just to be really clear, what is it about the branded operators that you steer away from? Why would you come to the West End if you can go and eat in that and have that same eating experience five minutes from your door? And, and actually, history has, has proven that the covenant strength, you know, pe- the historically companies 
were drawn to these branded operators because of the perception of government strength. You know, in a difficult market, these are big companies, they'll always be able to pay the rent. Well, the last couple of years has proved that's actually not the case. Um, You know, it's been countless CVAs and liquidations and and actually landlords that were were exposed to to these kind of brands across the country actually found themselves in, in a very precarious position. Whereas our portfolio, with its focus on lots of small and independent-led businesses, granted through the, you know, the financial support we gave them, but also the practical support, most of these operators were able to weather the storm. They, they diversified, they found ways to offer meal kits and online activities. And you know, while none of that compares to, to trading in the way they want to, that was enough to get them through. And now they can reopen and they can start to, start to recover. What are the traits of those truly great businesses? So, so the businesses that I've worked with that have, have seen the greatest long-term success are the founder-led businesses where the founders stay with the business. They don't you know, sell out to private equity. They don't have a five-year you know, exit plan. They love it. They live and breathe it. They're passionate about it. And we've worked with operators over the years, including the guys behind the Palomar, who the, the Paskin family, you have four sites with us. All four of those are completely different concepts. And so two are Middle Eastern restaurants, but, but very different concepts. One is a, a cafe, one is a bar. So, you know, they don't take the easy road of, of just replicating their initial success. They challenge themselves every time. Julia, thanks for joining us today on Fifth Wave. The overall London market has bounced back and demand is high. We've seen short-term dips in rent, but central London is almost back to business as usual. COVID created a much-needed shake-up, and Julia believes the biggest opportunities in London's hospitality sector lie in young, exciting, owner-led brands. And that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please subscribe to Fifth Wave wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate a good rating if you enjoyed this show. This episode was produced in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Hannah Heath, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Bristow. And this week's song is from New York-based artist Abriel Scharf, recent winner of the Coffee Music Project songwriting competition with a beautiful song called The Woman That Made Me. Abriel will actually be in London next weekend to perform at the London Coffee Festival. I hope you can come and join us. And until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated. She told me I looked beautiful when my day forgot Called me on my bullshit Taught me how to budget Grady knows the words to all my songs I don't have to ask for her to listen She'll guide pair of my hypothetical children Loves every kid she's known Now she's gonna have one of her own this year Watch me unfold and give me notes to try another take Worked overtime for nothing to show me I was something Boney told me all the world's a stage Dark times she's always seen me golden 